All right, our text today is Matthew chapter 24. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 14, Matthew chapter 24. So before we read the text, though, I'm curious to ask, uh, what do you think of when you think about end times and Christ's second coming? Do you think about uh, the variety of differing views and, uh, uh, and anticipating what it looks like? Does it bring, uh, does its complexity overwhelm you? And you say, you know what, let's just leave that to other people to ponder. It's so complex, I just, I don't have the time to invest into learning more about end times. Does end times and Christ's second coming bring you joy and hope? Our passage today deals with end times, and I'd like to use a word moving forward that I'll be using a lot in this sermon. It's called eschaton. Eschaton. Eschaton simply means end times. And eschatology is the study of end times. So I'll be using that language as a heads up. Eschaton. I'm going I'm to do something funny. Can we say that just once together, the word one, two, three? Eschaton. Uh, you guys are such good sports. Thank you. All right. End times. That's what it means. Let's go ahead and read Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 14. Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, and he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left on here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Let's pray. God, our Father, I ask that you will stir our hearts, Lord, to grow in anticipation for the eschaton. I ask, Lord, that you will, Lord, allow it to impact our hearts in such a way where it doesn't just give us something to think about, but, Lord, it genuinely will cause us to live differently today. We pray this in your name. Amen. So one of my favorite bands is a, uh, a band called Nickel Creek. They are a, folk of, uh, a mix of folk and bluegrass. And in their most recent album, they wrote a song called The 21st of May. And here are the lyrics. I'll try not to sing it. I want to. but It's time to bid this whole world goodbye. Oh glory, time to fly away. We'll meet our Savior in the sky. Hallelujah, the 21st of May. Sinner, heed these words of mine about the coming judgment day. Yes, the end is drawing nigh. Hallelujah, the 21st of May.
They laughed while Noah built his boat, then cried when came the rain. They mock me now, but I will float on the 21st of May. Well, I've never been so sure, and I've never led no one astray, except in the fall of 94. Hallelujah, the 21st of May. So this song is based off of, of an event that some of you actually may remember, uh, where in 2011, the president of the Family Radio Christian Network announced that the world would end on the 21st of May. He claimed that this date would be the rapture beyond a shadow of a doubt, and that roughly uh, 3% of the world's population, 200 million people, would be raptured. And this was actually his second prediction after an earlier claim in the fall of 1994, just as the lyrics of our song mention. I love this song for it, it has an incredible guitar part. But it also, uh, it's an enjoyable story that it tells. There's a little bit of comedy it pre presents. But I have to be cautious that this song, uh, that when I listen to it, it doesn't tempt me to make less of the genuine warning that Jesus gives us in this passage we just read. Three times Jesus warns of being led astray in these verses. And while very few to none of us may have been actually swayed by this man's claim back in 2011 of the world's end, there are more serious claims and more serious challenges that seek to sway our faith. For example, it has been 2,000 years since this passage in Revela the book of Revelation was written. Is it really ever going to happen? We see Christian leaders we look up to renouncing the faith or are disqualified by sexual misconduct. It's a poor testimony. Or there are so many different views about the end times. Why are we still trying to figure this out? Shouldn't we just trust God and leave these passages alone? COVID threatens to divide the church. Christians are being killed in Afghanistan. Like the disciples in our passage today, we too are in danger of being led astray. But as we'll see in our passage, we must endure with faith because God extends to us eternal hope. We must endure with faith. Let's look, uh, look again with me in verses 3 through 8. It is first important to notice, so important to notice, that the disciples' question in verse 3 is actually two questions. The first is when will the temple be destroyed? And the second is what will be the sign of the end of the coming age? Now for them, that, might, that question might seem one and the same, but it's actually two questions. And this is important for us to realize because for the rest of the chapter, in, uh, in chapter 24, we have to keep straight which question Jesus is answering. In our verses specifically, nearly all commentators agree that Jesus is addressing the second question. What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? We know this from verse 8 and verse 14, which describe mostly end times rather than uh, the temple's destruction, though there is some overlap. But notice how Jesus answers the disciples' question about when. He never gives them a firm time. This is even stated explicitly later on in verse 36, and Jesus even says, no one knows that day or that hour. Instead, Jesus answers by giving signs and warnings of the eschaton. 
Verse 5 warns of false leaders proclaiming to be Christ. Verse 6 and 7 warn of wars. Verse 7 also warns of natural disasters. What is Jesus doing? Jesus, his point is rather that the disciples should not try to predict when the eschaton will come. Rather, the disciples should prepare for the eschaton that is coming. His point is that the disciples should not try to predict when it will come. Rather, they should prepare for the eschaton that is coming. And how are the disciples to prepare for the eschaton? Verse 4, 5, and 11 give us our first answer. They are not to be led astray. Do not be led astray by those proclaiming to be Christ. Do not be led astray by those predicting when the end comes. Do not be led astray by false prophets speaking a truth that is a lie. The first way the disciples were to endure by faith was not to be led astray. So the medieval ages was a time of small city-states led by lords who had at their command warriors motivated by clan and honor. However, all of these lands considered themselves Christians. Here was a desire to defend Christian lands and avenge the honor of Christians against other Christians. Realizing this was a major issue, in 1095, Pope Urban II gave a sermon that some call the most influential speech in human history and led many astray. You see, he cried out to the Christian knights to stop fighting each other and instead to battle infidels. To brandish your sword against the Saracens is the only warfare that is righteous, he claimed. Pope Urban then called it a holy pilgrimage and drew on themes of honor, monastic ideal, knights of Christ, that death brings imperishable glory and the remission of sins. War is redemptive. This speech led to the rousing of some say 70 to 100,000 individuals to start the first crusade to conquer the Holy Land. Critique of the Crusades is easy at a distance, honestly, but almost here's a part of the problem. Almost every major Christian leader at that time endorsed it and was led astray. St. Bernard, Thomas Aquinas, St. Francis of Assisi, these are people from our church history. Men and women were prepared to sacrifice wealth, health, and life itself in a cause which they believed in to be just and even salvational. Why? Because cultural norms informed theology rather than theology informing cultural norms. You see, the biblical concept of repentance had been replaced by the cultural concept of penance. It was really about the soldiers and knights' assurance of salvation. It was a baptism of cultural ideas. Go, kill, die, redeem. We have these knights that were killing each other, castle against castle, lord against lord. So instead, send them to kill the Saracens. The biblical concept of repentance was replaced by the cultural concept of penance. Just as the Crusades led astray nearly uh, three or four generations more than, Jesus warns that we must endure with faith and not be led astray. You and I are in genuine danger of being led astray by movements that are large 
and cultural. Jesus does not talk in this passage of things that are small. He, he, he speaks of large, massive things. Wars, kingdom against kingdoms, natural disasters. From massive cultural moments come cultural beliefs. COVID has reshaped what the world believes. It has. Pulling out of Afghanistan has reshaped what the world, world believes. World leaders, whether it's Trump, Biden, or Jeff Bezos, have reshaped what the world believes. And what are the beliefs that you now hold to be true from these events? It's not what you believe that causes you trouble. It's what you believe and isn't true that causes you trouble. That may seem very uh, logical, and of course that's the case, but we must ask ourselves the same question about how we are being led astray. What cultural values and ideas are, the, are in the air that we do not think to examine? What cultural norms do we baptize and make holy and call biblical? The eschaton is coming. And Jesus calls to endure to the end without being led astray. All of this includes what you and I believe about the eschaton as well. This fall, our sermon series is actually going to be on the book of Revelation. As we approach it, we must not do so with a plan and a desire to predict and to formulate, but to see the eternal hope God offers us in the midst of a world that would seek to sway us. Our standard of truth has been set before us, church. Christ, as he has revealed himself to us in time and history, and the scriptures given proclaiming his having come and his future coming, we are to endure with faith by not being led astray because God extends to us eternal hope. So and not only are we to endure by not being led astray, but our passage continues in 9-14 through that we are to endure through suffering. So Jesus now shifts away from signs of the eschaton we see to signs of the eschaton we suffer. Let's read again, actually, verses 9-14. through I'm going to read those again here. Verse 9, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So in this grim but hopeful portion of text, Jesus expounds on the trials to be faced by Christians before the end. And it's actually important to note that all of these events in these verses are actually said to have occurred prior to 70 AD. One commentator summed it up when he said, persecution dogged believers' footsteps throughout the book of Acts. That's one. Internal dissension uh, so tore apart the church at Corinth. That's two. Numerous New Testament epistles were written primarily to warn against false teachers and perversions of Christianity, such as Galatians, Colossians, 1 Timothy. That's three. Arguably, the concept of love growing cold most aptly characterizes the days of the Neronian persecution of Christians in the, in the mid-60s. That's four, uh, four or five. Finally, Paul, with whatever rationale, could claim that at least... By the late 50s, the gospel had gone out into 
all the known world or the Roman Empire. So this, so this leads us to two questions. First, if all of this has already been fulfilled prior to 70 AD, does this mean we will not have to suffer through the events of verses 9 through 12? Sadly, we can easily discern the answer to that is no. First, contextually, verse 13 says, the end is not yet come, so enduring must continue. But secondly, we also have our experiential answer. These things are happening. We still witness them happen. We've lived through some of them happening. They continue to happen. We live in the same redemptive era and period of time that the disciples lived in. Like them, we are awaiting Christ's second coming after having witnessed the first. Our witness is through Scripture and through the testimony of the church. So this will then lead us to the second question then. If all these events have already been fulfilled, does this not mean that Christ should have returned by now? Well, by no means. Jesus wants his disciples to realize that once again, it's not about when he returns, but how we conduct ourselves through the trials we face until he returns. Jesus having met and fulfilled these requirements in these verses means that Jesus could still come at any time now after that age and after that period of time. Endure, the passage calls us to. Endure tribulation, endure being hated, endure betrayal, lawlessness, love growing cold. Jesus wants his disciples to hold dearly in their hearts the readiness, the expectation, and the hope of Christ's return at any moment. This is one of the things that makes, the, honestly, the Bible so real, honest, and even raw. Jesus does not pretend or ignore the pain and hardship that we have in our lives. He doesn't say being good will remove all suffering. He acknowledges it and then extends hope in the midst of it. Verse 13, the one who endures will be saved. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Jesus calls his disciples to endure for that day when death itself will be defeated. And not only will salvation be brought to those who endure, but verse 14 says the kingdom mission will be fulfilled as well. That the gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. We are to endure suffering because God extends to us the eternal hope. Have you ever longed for something so much that you've counted down the days until it came? Kids, maybe for you it was a Six Flags trip. Or maybe it was Christmas morning or the last day of school. Maybe for those of us who are older, maybe it was your wedding day. The birth of your child. Let's actually focus on that, that last one a small bit. Pregnancy is a powerful testimony of enduring suffering for the hope set before a mother. Right? Month one, you have a three ounce fetus calling the shots. Food doesn't taste good, and when it does taste good, you end up throwing up half of it anyways. As the months progress, you get heartburn, you can't fall asleep at night, facing constipation, varicose veins, hemorrhoids, and nosebleeds. Your back hurts if you stand the wrong way, sit the wrong way, sleep the wrong way. Your phases constantly have itchy legs and arms. You start to feel more and more bloated and the baby starts to rest more upon your bladder and you have to use the bathroom more all the time. And none of that is even to mention the emotional toll the husband has to go through supporting the wife. <laughs> but this hasn't even uh, 
So I can say that because my wife is pregnant, and that's not true. I know that. But this hasn't even taken into account the actual birthing process, right? Pain, fatigue, exhaustion, gr frankly, grossness, and a genuine threat of life that giving birth can be. But the husband and wife have waited. They've anticipated. The wife specifically, particularly, has been suffering and longing for this moment. And then the child is born. To this day, I am simply unable to express the kind of love I have and feel for my daughter. It can only be explained through story and testimony. It, 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 it cannot be categorized. Just, as like, just like my love for my wife cannot be categorized, but only experientially explained. Enduring suffering of pregnancy for your child's birth is a temporary illustration of an eternal reality that I'm trying to talk about, that we're trying to understand. Even this cannot give the full picture of the eternal hope and joy we can anticipate and look forward to in the midst of our suffering. We are to endure with hope and rekindle the theology of the eschaton in our hearts amidst the theology of a world where suffering is not allowed. A hope where loved ones will be reunited. Where tears are no more. Where we can behold our triune God as creatures that will no longer sin. How well do you respond when you find yourself hated? In today's age, it's becoming less and less impossible to not be categorized and seen as an enemy of somebody, especially as a Christian. In those moments... Do we heed the call of the passage to endure? Meekly in love, confident in your standing before God, awaiting the eschaton. How well do you respond to the constant decay you may experience in your own life? When your legs stop walking, when your herniated discs are pained, when you realize your eyesight is getting worse and worse, when you notice you're able to hear less and less, when your knee stops you from exercising, when your mind begins to attack you, when you notice your memory is fading. In the trial, where your body is falling apart, we hope for a resurrected body. When your body aches, it is an alarm clock, tick, tick, ticking, reminding you of the eschaton and the hope therein. This next week, when you feel that twinge, hope. COVID has transformed our culture, I've said it before, and of course, honestly, it should. It forces people to face one of their greatest enemies and fears, death itself. We occupy a world now where people are, trying, are, are wrestling with death and are trying to make sense of something for which they do not have an answer for outside of Christ. In the midst of their battle, too many of this, and I am guilty of this, have attacked them as being short-sighted, ignorant, driven only by fear. How have we become so unwilling to place our arms around them with the good news and hope found in Christ and the eternal joy and peace that we have? I'm ashamed of myself for enduring so poorly in those moments in my own life where I don't end up sharing the love and the hope that I genuinely have. I of all people and we of all people have, should have hope and should share it 
in the midst of a culture terrified by death. The following is a quote from a book called Lament for a Son, written by Nicholas Wolterstorff, who lost his son in an accident when his son was only 25 years old. He writes this in his book, and I highly recommend it. How is faith to endure, O God, when you allow all this scraping and tearing on us? You have allowed rivers of blood to flow, mountains of suffering to pile up, sobs to become humanity's song, all without lifting a finger that we could see. You have allowed bonds of love beyond number to be painfully snapped. If you have not abandoned us, explain yourself. We strain to hear, but instead of hearing an answer, we catch sight of God himself scraped and torn. Through our tears, we see the tears of God. A new and more disturbing question now arises. Why do you permit yourself to suffer, O God? If the death of the devout costs you dear, the devout son costs you dear, why do you permit it? Verse 13 says, The one who endures to the end will be saved. And the theology of the cross, where God sees his own son upon it, is baffling against, the, against verse 13. Jesus did endure to the end. He was not saved. The only answer to our suffering that could possibly extend to us an eternity and a hope in God was the answer that ended in God's Son enduring to the end and not being saved. His Son hung on the cross to rise again on the third day in victory that we can see our own death in Him and our own life raised again new in His resurrection. Let us prepare for the eschaton, not looking to discern a time but preparing for His coming by enduring with faith. Christ has endured for you. In Him, find your ability to endure to the end already satisfied. Press on with hope in the midst of those who would seek to lead us astray. and Press on in hope through suffering. A light and a beacon to the world of the hope that we can share to those too who are perishing. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we pray for Your Spirit to work in us. We pray that, Lord, that the eschaton will, will not be something that we will not impact us with no effect. But God, you've, you've, throughout all of Scripture, You proclaim that the eschaton is to change how we live today. We ask and pray that it will indeed be impressed upon our hearts that, Lord, You will guide and that You will have our hearts stirred to live afresh and live anew with hope in you as many seek to lead us astray and as we face suffering. We pray this all in your name. Amen.